Dr. Carmine Simone completed his training in thoracic surgery and adult critical care at the University of Toronto. He started at Michael Guerin Hospital as the medical director of critical care and then became the chief of surgery and medical director of the surgery health program. He is currently the medical lead for COVID response at Michael Guerin Hospital and the medical director for integrated programs for Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre and Michael Guerin Hospital. He is an associate professor in the Department of Surgery at UFT and his current research focus is on developing systems to predict and prevent post-operative complications. Dr. Simone, welcome to the show. Welcome. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. It's great to be here. Amazing. So, uh, I mean, audience members may not know this, but Dr. Simone really is a, a local celebrity at Seamless <laughs> MD. He was really one of the first uh, uh, surgeons to, to use the technology and to develop the technology with Seamless. And and so truly a pioneer in the space. And, you know, Dr. Simone, maybe to start the conversation, you know, Michael Guerin Hospital, or, or back then, as it was known, was uh, Toronto East General Hospital, is home to the Center of Excellence for Thoracic Surgery and is renowned for innovation. Um, just a couple examples that I've pulled, you know, you've conducted over 737 research projects since 1988. And I saw that Michael Guerin also hosts a hospital-wide annual Dragon's Den competition to support innovation in patient care. And, and so my, my starting question is, how did uh, Toronto East General and specifically your thoracic team develop uh, such a culture that is eager to try new innovations? So that's a great question. Um, so, you know, we always, uh, for, for when it comes to innovation, I think I like to think of the three L's. Uh, so uh, leadership, uh, learners, and uh, letdowns. So for, for us, we have fantastic leadership. And I think uh, Joshua, in the early days, I think you met with uh, Carmine Stumpo and at the time with Sardani, our CEO. And so very forward-thinking individuals, and they create an environment where it's safe for us to venture off and try to start to think about new things. And also an environment which we have to be financially, uh, or at least financially and fiscally responsible, uh, it's limiting, or at least it could be limiting, but it does make you think even harder about coming up with some pretty cool strategies to try to innovate. Uh, and so leadership is a big deal. And uh, back then we, and we still do, but back then there was definitely the leadership that was uh, prime and in place to start thinking about innovative ways for us to deliver the same care that we're delivering. Learners is huge. We are an academic uh, uh, center, so we do have uh, medical students, we have residents, we have uh, learners from faculty of nursing, and that's huge because, number one, it keeps you relevant, it keeps you quite honest, and you have to listen to the feedback, and if you do, you wind up getting some really great ideas. And if you remember back then, uh, Joshua, we were looking at, you know, kind of exploring new ways to figure out uh, how to deliver the information that we wanted to deliver to patients preoperatively. And that really spawned from some research that a medical student conducted that, that showed us that our paper uh, pamphlets, uh, the uptake was like 20%. So 20% of people actually, it was actually 17% of people retained information that we were giving them. And it was from that that we realized, you know, we need to do something better. And it wasn't us that brought it to our attention. It was our learners. Mm. And the other thing is a letdown, right? So that the, the, it's really nothing spurs on innovation, disappointment, <laughs> and, uh, and, and strain and stress and uh, chaos. And so we had uh, a string of issues and we had uh, some concerns. 
not only about patient education, patient outcome, but more importantly, patient satisfaction, worker satisfaction. At the time, it was really, really uh, a very concerning time that we had a lot of our healthcare uh, allies. It's funny that we're talking about that during COVID right now, but you know, this was even 10, 15 years ago, a recurring theme where we wanted to engage our, our patients, we wanted to engage our staff into doing something that was better for our patients and better for outcomes. And so we tried a few things and that weren't successful. And so again, that spurs on desire to try to do even better. And uh, I think that was sort of the trifecta, the perfect storm. But what's really great in a place like Michael Guerin, which is a little bit smaller, more nimble, uh, not as much bureaucracy and hoops to jump through, that culture continues and continued and brought us to where we are today, where we've done quite a few interesting things during COVID and allowed us to do some interesting things and innovative things. And, and then once you have a couple that really catch on, then the momentum starts and now everyone is really looking for the next best thing. And that's a fantastic environment to work in. Amazing. I think Dr. Simone, um, just, I just want to highlight one part of the seamless journey that I think is really telling of how innovative yourself and, and your team have been over, over many years. Um, so when Seamless first started, uh, for those who don't know, we were initially focused on the post-discharge phase. Right. And when we first met you, I think this is probably back in late 2013, maybe early 2014, I'd have to, to check the calendars. But um, to your point from your team, you brought up um, the comment around pre-operative. You said, well, hey, like, you know, we have a lot of pre-operative instructions. Wouldn't this be helpful? And so actually those conversations with yourself um, inspired us to start thinking more broadly about the whole patient journey. So um, for, for many of our partners who have benefited um, from the preoperative experience on, on Seamless, you have Dr. Simone and his team to thank for, for pushing us in that direction. And maybe that's a good segue. So obviously the pandemic has made it obvious um, that things like digital patient engagement, remote monitoring, you know, make sense today. Um, but we didn't have a pandemic seven years ago when we first started working with yourself and Michael Guerin, but yet you were one of the earliest adopters of this. So um, what did you see back then around this sort of patient experience that maybe others didn't at the time? I'm not sure what you know, others didn't see, but one that was a huge benefit that we saw, um, we started with the journey. Um, and again, I have, to, I have to also go into the memory banks, but um, there were a few things that were happening simultaneously. And we were trying to uh, get some of our medical patients home sooner because we served a population of patients that felt far more comfortable and far more at, at ease being cared for at home. Uh, we had uh, our COPD patients and our congestive heart failure patients specifically back then. We noted we had a lot of people that signed themselves out, people that were really leaning because they didn't want to be in a hospital environment. They felt more comfortable at home. At first we thought, wait a minute, it's at our hospital, but it's actually no. In our entire East Toronto uh, catchment, it, it is very common amongst a particular demographic to be cared for at home. And we respect that. Mm -hmm. We also see that with our palliative care patients. And then when we started to dig, we realized, wait a minute, all patients would rather be sleeping in their own bed and eating their own food and care, you know, especially when we're not doing very much active medical care and we're just observing or monitoring. And so when we explored that, we came up with the Home Today program. So we tried to come up with patients who by and large really only needed to be in hospital for about 48 hours. But beyond that, many problems can be dealt with virtually or remotely. At the time, we weren't thinking about virtually, but remotely. 
And so then when it came to surgery, we realized there are a lot of things that we're doing, especially for patients that are then in the third or fourth day of recovery from their surgery, that really don't need a nurse. They really don't need a doctor to be at their bedside. And quite frankly, when you're on the ward and you're on post-operative day three, you're not really the person who is getting a lot of attention because you're more independent. You're doing all your exercises independently. And so it was really a natural segue to say, hey, wait a minute, what's happening in the population, in the medicine population, what's happening in all of our demographic around us, what's happening in surgery, might be a good opportunity for us to, again, make patients far more engaged and happy about their care. So they're only here for a short period of time, what they need to get. And then the rest we can do and monitor with them at home. It would also allow the staff to be a bit more engaged because staff are far more engaged when they're looking at acute patients, patients that require more attention, but in patients that are a bit more independent, well, that's something that is a little bit less engaging for the, the staff. And so to have many of patients that are pretty much independent, don't need you, really creates a different work environment. We want them to be engaged. And, and we thought that if we increase the acuity, we would make uh, the nurses, for example, work their entire scope of their practice and feel more engaged and feel more involved. So that was sort of the spirit of the discussion. Um, and then when you and I started talking about things, we really quickly realized, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we could monitor from afar and uh, set up alerts just in case things don't go as planned. But we realized that, in fact, that happens really infrequently. And most of it is not about a medical intervention. It's about just reassurance. It's about asking, uh, answering a question, maybe setting up a bit of a, an education video about how you're supposed to do your exercises and um, maybe a, a few uh, little touch points, which is re more reassurance than anything else and really creates a much better environment for patients to, to heal, much better environment for patients to feel happy about their post-operative journey. And again, makes staff far more, um, far more engaged with their patients because their patients actually need them as opposed to they're just waiting around to get discharged. And, and Dr. Simone, I mean, one of the things that I think is very unique about your use of Seamless um, is you actually um, filmed videos of yourself, yourself personally um, explaining different topics related to the thoracic surgery experience. So I remember you filmed videos about, you know, why it's important to stop um, consuming alcohol before surgery. You filmed videos on the importance of smoking cessation on, you know, post-operative exercises. I can tell you, you know, for probably most of our partners, even today, very few of any have actually filmed their own team members talking into um, a video. Usually it's they're you know, customizing the, the text and maybe the illustrations, but not actual video themselves personally. But I know that um, a lot of your patients have really appreciated the fact that they see you talking into the, the camera within the seamless application. Uh, love to get a sense of, you know, what you've heard from patients about like the value of seeing you actually in the application talking to them. So you're right, actually, and they, they do appreciate that. Um, a couple of things, even the audio of, of you talk, or myself talking or my staff talking, uh, the other physicians talking, or if we had our clinic nurse, um, it, it, it adds that element of personal touch. Uh, but patients do appreciate, they feel that connectedness and it's not just some cold algorithm that is spewing something out because, you know, AI tells them to say this, um, but there is that 
personal touch. Mm-hmm. There is, a, and again, we were looking, you know, back before pandemic, now it's a little bit different, but before pandemic, and again, the demographic that we were uh, trying to uh, pitch this to, there was a little bit of distrust. There was a little bit of um, how is it that this phone, <laughs> uh, many of our patients don't have phone. If you remember, many of our patients needed to use the desktop version of the information, but you know, how is this going to keep me safe at home or answer my questions? And so it was, it was that, that distrust that we said, if we put a face to it and we answer the question by actually being honest and, and if, if you remember, they weren't edited, it was just like this, it was just a conversation, whatever we said, we said, it was two minutes. And uh, even if there's a couple of mistakes, it actually added to that humanity of the question. Um, It just made it a much more uh, trusting uh, platform. Um, And that's actually the most common feedback that we get is uh, that that it wasn't seamless or it wasn't the computer was, oh, it was Dr. Simone said so, or it was, you know, Dr. Safadine, or it was, uh, you know, the nurse, uh, it was uh, Tricia that that actually said all these things. And uh, it's just that perception or that perspective, I shouldn't say perception, but that perspective of uh, the, they feel more trusting of the information that was coming from the, uh, the application. So actually, one of my favorite memories, and I hope you don't mind me taking this way back, and I'm not sure, Dr. Smov, you remember this, but you, we actually filmed, um, or you filmed, a version one and a version two of the videos way back when. And actually, if I remember right, version one was you in front of probably like a, a webcam. I think you were probably filming from your home, your home desk. And I'm pretty sure it was November because I think you had a, a I think you had a mustache <laughs> during, during some of the, the, one of the videos. Um, but, but still like, it was very like humanizing and all that. And I think at some point, um, you, you in the hospital side, Hey, let's actually film some professional videos. So then I think V2, um, had you in the operating room with your scrubs on and it wasn't November anymore. (laughs) And, uh, I mean, both, I think both are still good, but, uh, um, I just just had this memory of uh, your version one, which was, which was really great. I still have some of those November uh, videos, actually. I still keep them there. They were still really good. And uh, and <laughs> again, adding to the previous comment, uh, patients get a kick out of it. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, an- another just quick question. Um, you know, I mean, I think in my opinion, a lot of different patient journeys could benefit from this digital guidance and experience, but in thoracic surgery, which is a higher risk, you know, um, clinical journey than some other procedures that a patient could have in their life. Um, I, I'd want to guess that a thoracic patient could benefit more from some of the, you know, pre and post-operative education on the app and the symptom tracking. I was curious from like a clinical point of view, are there certain aspects um, that you think make the survey experience particularly useful from a thoracic lens for a patient? Very much so. I think more, um, more complex, less common surgery is where the application shines. So uh, especially when you look at our catchment, we have a large uh, family practice or community uh, program or community uh, support, which by definition means that each individual clinician would probably see a thoracic surgery patient you know, maybe once or twice a year. It's not a very common occurrence for each individual clinician out in the community. And so patients really didn't have the alternative of, well, if they can't find the surgeon, they can call the nurse. If they can't call the nurse, they'll call my family doctor, or we'll go into a walk-in. Someone will have the answer. Well, you don't have that benefit with very uh, unique or, or uncommon surgery, like, hepat- like liver surgery, hepatobiliary surgery, or uh, neurosurgery, or thoracic surgery, cardiac surgery, even though 
as a community or as a population, they happen frequently. Each clinician wouldn't have the volume to be able to answer sometimes pretty common questions. And so we learned that pretty quickly where they seemed like simple questions for us, but the family physicians really appreciated saying, oh my gosh, you know what? I didn't really know that, thanks. Or I don't feel comfortable answering this question. And so it was covered by the either the videos or the application. And then if it became really, really, really specific, then you know that if you're getting a phone call, especially for someone who was registered, because we used to be able to flag who was and who wasn't, well, then that heightened our, our um, awareness and it heightened our concern because if it wasn't dealt with by the app and they already, you know, remember the first echelon of intervention was, you know, please contact either your family physician or telehealth and didn't get by, wait a minute, this is pretty, this is a pretty important question. So right. they would get flagged and that person needs to get in touch with that day. And 90% of the time, it was a pretty valid concern. Um, and so I, I think that the more complex or the more infrequent the surgery uh, and the post-operative journey is, I think this is where this kind of platform really, really, really shines. It helps patients out. And we've gotten, and it's not just about what the patients feedback. I've had a lot of family physicians say, you know, that was great. Thank you so much. Uh, because, you know, I didn't really understand when I was supposed to start the anticoagulation after the chest tube came out. So that's great. And so it was really very evident very early on. Um, and if you remember, we wanted to kind of even to go on to the, our day surgery, but our day surgery, it falls into the more common everyday patients can get those answers pretty readily now. And that that's not where we were getting the most uptake. It was really more for the more complex, the patients with the longer uh, stays, that's where we felt the biggest benefit and we got the, the most amount of positive feedback. You know, I, I think it's really interesting when you were explaining uh, your initial thought processes around bringing digital patient engagement. And you mentioned how you looked at family practice and you looked elsewhere in the hospital, basically, because it's so often that we hear that healthcare is siloed and everybody is kind of in their own bubble. And so it's neat to hear that you're looking elsewhere to understand, you know, what's helping if it's questions that are being asked to the family physician, like how can we help with that journey as well for the patient? I'd be remiss to say, you know, beyond your clinical duties, you've now continued to grow your leadership roles across Michael Guerin. Um, you're the VP of clinical programs and now the medical lead for COVID response. And so I, my curiosity is more around, you know, what's motivated you to get more involved with healthcare leadership? Um, <laughs> that's uh, uh, so, so I guess the, um, the reality is uh, COVID really spurred on that desire became very, very clear that um, reaching out into the community, reaching out into our family practice um, colleagues and our community partners, our anchor partners, helping them out and being involved in what they do. Although I'm going to, I'm going to be careful how I say this, although it may seem altruistic and you is quite self-serving because if they succeeded, and we were able to actually provide care closer to home and in the community where it deserved to be and where patients really felt comfortable having. It allowed us to actually continue doing the stuff that we needed to do that was higher acuity that needed to be in the hospital. Because in the programs and in the hospitals that didn't recognize how important it was to reach out and be actively involved in the community, they were overwhelmed. Mm. Because basically everything came to the emerge, they became overwhelmed, all they were dealing with was COVID and they shut down. Yeah. 
So we were able to actually keep our ORs running well into the shutdown. And we were one of the first ones to actually open up. Mm -hmm. now, we weren't opening up at 100%. And of course, there were a lot of safety issues. Uh, and even now with the volume, we're, we're struggling. But we really have, from our backlog, we're not as bad off as any comparable hospitals, even, even not comparable, even larger hospitals. We're farther ahead. And that, that recognition of weird as it is, if I want to do, if I want to be better at this, I have to start thinking about a system. I have to start thinking about a community. I have to start thinking it much wider. Mm -hmm. And then that led on to, it's not just about thoracic surgery anymore. It became very quickly, not just about surgery. It just became about if the hospital wants to continue to provide acute care and the care that we need to deliver the heart program, the neurology program, the orthopedic program, every program, we need to really recognize that we have to be in the community. We have to be partners. We have to be engaged partners. And we need to really be able to provide the care that's supposed to happen outside of a hospital in the community at the same standard. I loved working with our anchor partners. Obviously, in 2020, when things really started to, to go awry, we, we were forced to work together, but it became very quickly uh, notable that uh, we all really enjoyed working with each other. And I guess the rest, as they say, is history. And then, yeah, then it was basically stepping into a more uh, VP role where it became more program related. And uh, now the medical lead uh, working with our uh, VP clinical programs and our VP clinical. So it's very exciting. It's very great and rewarding to look at how, when you are able to reach out into the community, build a system, build a huge structure around supporting patients in the community. And some of these communities are, you know, very marginalized, very, very underserviced. When we reach out to them, we realize, hey, look, our merge numbers come down. Our vaccination rates go up. Our number of critically ill patients have gone down. We have capacity on our medicine wards. We have capacity on our pediatric ward. We were one of the few hospitals that actually maintained capacity for pediatrics throughout wave three. In fact, we became the center of excellence for our pediatric and adolescent uh, eating disorder clinic, uh, eating disorders uh, throughout the GTA because we were able to actually keep capacity and we were able to keep and again, it's not about not providing care, keep them out, you know, lock the doors. We, we actually went out. We had, uh, we had outreach, uh, one of the first hospitals to have um, a nurse that uh, goes uh, with the Toronto police with, uh, uh, for patients that uh, don't require actual police but are having uh, medical or mental health crises. Uh, we started that in 2008. Um, so we started looking at community uh, vaccination and mobile units. We were doing that as of uh, the summer of 2020 uh, when we were testing. It wasn't at the back then, it wasn't about vaccination, it was about testing. But we had our mo mobile program then. We had local vendors, we had our food trucks. Um, uh, you probably saw, maybe if you, if you are curious, you can look at the YouTube videos, but we had some of the food trucks that actually had refrigeration units that were volunteering to go into the community uh, to provide a much more welcoming environment for patients to come out to get actually tested. And we'd be in courtyards in, in the community. It, why, why are you focusing on that? Why are you bringing your staff out there? Well, for every thousand patients that we test in that community is a thousand less that show up in our community assessment center, which is already busting at the seams. A place like, uh, you know, I mean, I won't talk about some other communities, but there were many communities that were 
unable to keep up and we're, uh, we're having outbreaks within the lineups of their assessment centers. Well, mm. we, we realized that we can't do that. Number one, we're too small. So we're, it's not like we can compete with a multi-site program like Scarborough or Brampton mm. or Mississauga, which are huge entities. But we, we needed to really smarten up and make sure that the care delivered in the community was right for the patients, was right for our healthcare workers because they loved that work, kept us going and we were able to be a hospital and do what hospitals are supposed to do. And we were able to actually move ahead. Now, that's not one guy. That's definitely not, that's yeah. a team. I loved being part of that team. Uh, it was a very welcoming team. And uh, yeah, I think it was just a natural progression for me to move into that role. But again, being supported by a phenomenal, phenomenal leadership team and a group of individuals that are really committed to community care. I think it's fascinating how you highlighted that, you know, as terrible as COVID has been, it was a trigger for, for more collaboration because there are so many dependencies now on, to your point, if we control this well in the community, it reduces utilization of possible resources, et cetera, et cetera. I know obviously, um, you know, Michael Guerin and the Toronto's Health Network has a very close affiliation with the Southeast Toronto Family Health Team. And so there's a lot of great coordination going on there. I was just kind of curious, you know, there's obviously a lot of other, um, frankly, probably the majority of family uh, medicine practices are not family health teams, probably don't have close affiliations with hospitals, but um, in today's time, probably better, closer collaboration with even some of the non-academic affiliated family health teams or, or practices is really important. Do you have any suggestions for maybe what needs to change about the healthcare system here in Ontario to foster, I don't know if it's incentives or other reasons why, uh, you know, a traditionally separated or fragmented family health practice could then be better hooked into, you know, Michael Guerin Hospital locally, for example, or any other hospital, like what has to be done to better just get everyone, everyone working together. I feel like that's been a struggle for, for many decades. You're right. So that last comment right there. So that's, uh, that's really been a struggle. Um, some of the areas in Ontario that really serve as examples, for example, Barrie, the Barrie area, where about 90 or 95% of their family physicians are all really involved in one care team. They, have, they share a common EMR, they share common, um, uh, common forms, common referrals, uh, and there's one essential hospital, one you know, place that they refer to. And so there's very good collaboration and partnership. But that's unique because that was built, it was, that was by design, and there's one organization. Toronto is very complex. And it's not only complex in terms of the hospitals and how the family doctors are, are, are have a relationship, but also how the communities are set up. Mm -hmm. In our community, again, I can only speak to really our community, we have over 80 languages represented. We have about 50 or 60 different cultural groups that are represented. Mm -hmm. um, we have some of the poorest uh, um, uh, postal codes in the GTA. And then we have some of the most affluent. We have the beach, right? So, and then we have Thorncliffe Park. We have uh, Talamay, uh, uh, We have we have basically many other uh, communities that are not as affluent and live below the poverty line. So we we it's hard to have family physicians that are centralized because they're not going to be able to serve many of these communities. 
So these Toronto um, Health Team, um, which is uh, basically a non-for-profit corporation that was developed by the family physicians to try to unite all of the physicians so that they're not really forced into the structure of a health team so that they're all physically in one building, but basically they're linked virtually or electronically not only to the organization, but also to community anchor partners and to each other. And we, we've grown quite a bit. And so then we credentialed all of those individuals as part of the hospital. So we basically came up with the theme of uh, a patient that does not get discharged. They basically uh, have a transition within our um, uh, Ontario health team, but we, no patient gets discharged. When you're ours, you're here for your entire life journey. Mm. And that philosophy, that creation of the team, even though it's virtual and not physically moving physicians around, so you can still be in your practice, but you can't practice the same way. You need to be linked with us. Okay. We need to talk. You need to share our resources. So we're all saying the same thing. And this is how we treat certain things all consistently so that we know what you're doing. You know what we're doing. That whole uh, and that's obviously not, not something that I came up with, but that the, they themselves uh, uh, unified and came up with, and they have community partners, and they have education series, uh, and we meet with them on a regular basis. I think that model would work in a complex environment like Toronto, where you can't basically start it from scratch by design like they did in Barrie, which is phenomenal, I had the foresight to be able to do that. But now we have a mechanism where if you have a hospital is sort of as a, a spoken and hub type of um, a model, uh, not that the hospital is the center of any healthcare system, but in this particular case, the hospital could serve as a center for tertiary care. And then everybody that's around is linked to each other and to the tertiary care hospital. And then to other anchor partners. So we have a community, uh, like Woodgreen, VHA, we have Providence, we have many other anchor partners that help us be able to deliver care for the entire continuum of, of your life. So from maternal newborns, so patient gets born, they have pediatrics, so we have full spectrum of pediatric care. If we don't, we then partner with sick kids or with other affiliates to make sure that the care that you need gets delivered, complex patients. And then adolescents, we have all of our medicine and surgery programs that are in place and then geriatrics, palliative care, oncology, and end of life care, and then community support. So now by creating this structure, trying to standardize things, and these are things that we were talking about, right? They, you and I were talking about back then, like standardizing the message, standardizing what we're telling patients, standardizing what we're telling our family docs. By doing that, it creates this much bigger safety net around the entire community and it allows us to deliver, again, care for the entire continuum of your life. You don't have to go very far. You can all get it here. But we also carry the responsibility that if we can't, it's our responsibility to find out who can help you with your thing that we don't do, liver transplant or complex neurosurgical intervention. Well, we don't do that, but, but it's our responsibility to make sure that you get the care that you need. And then when you're done with it, you come back into our community and we support you on your journey for recovery. And Dr. Simon, just to make sure that we document this right, you're referring to, I guess, is it East Toronto Health Partners, the Ontario Health Team? That's right. Uh, so the, the, the OHT um, envelops 
them, us, Providence, uh, VHA, Woodgreen. So there are there are six uh, or seven anchor partners as part of the o, uh, OHT. But uh, East Toronto Health Team uh, is the consortium of uh, family physicians, uh, which have come together, uh, and basically uh, all of them are credentialed at our hospital, so that there is seamless communication amongst all of them. I, mean, I think for me, the incredible thing is that this initiative, I think, formally started, I think, in 2019. That's mm-hmm. when the first OHTs were, were announced. And then I think in some ways feel a bit fortunate that that happened before the pandemic so that there was some sort of infrastructure, at least in place for this collaboration before all, you know, all, all the stuff hit the fan. So I um, feel a bit lucky that, that that was in place, I guess. It was so much luck, uh, but uh, but COVID really strengthened that partnership. It really, and it basically completely illustrated the utility and the benefit of being part of that group. And so we had way more individuals sign up and be part of the group and be part of the collective because it was also good for them, good for their patients. So we, we grew during COVID. It's not that we shrunk, we grew uh, as a collective and um, obviously it was for the, benef- for the benefit of the community. One of the other, I guess, topics on COVID that, that we were curious about is, and we've heard from different partners about how, um, you know, they're viewing technology platforms like Seamless from a patient engagement, remote monitoring point of view to play um, a role in their strategy for helping to um, reduce length of stay, get patients home safely, reduce the backlog. Um, I, I guess from your point of view, like what role does this sort of ex- digital experience um, play in helping um, your organization deal with the, the backlog? So for us, um, and, and you've been involved in some of that uh, work even more recently. So a couple of things. So preoperatively, uh, not only helping with making sure patients are properly screened and properly risk stratified in terms of COVID so that we know that patients that are coming are safe to come to the organization. Um, also, even from our work from before, making sure patients are properly prepared and educated to come to the hospital. It's becoming more and more difficult for you to get a human being at the end of a line to answer your questions. So we have to be able to provide as much information as possible that is readily accessible and patients can use. I think I mentioned at the beginning, you know, we know that we give them a piece of paper that's as good as lost. And as you know, 17% of people really look at uh, an instruction sheet or an appointment card. Uh, and really it's the digital reminders that dings on their phone 24, 48 hours prior to something. That's when we know patients are coming. And especially when we're trying to ramp up, every appointment is so crucial. If we have a no-show that's a huge wasted opportunity, especially now because we have such a backlog. And so that's part of the strategy is making sure that every patient is the right patient to come and they come to their appointment because it's so crucial. Um, and, and for imaging, for their surgery, for their biopsy, whatever. And then during their, their hospitalization, like we talked about before, we know that if we can lengthen or sorry, shorten their uh, length of stay by 10%, and that was the only goal that we had going into COVID is that if, we, and, and talking about wave three going into uh, what we were going into recovery, we're now dealing with wave four, but uh, planning for wave four, but when you know, we're, we're planning our strategy for a ramp up, if we can decrease 10%, mm-hmm. that allows us to actually have buffer for us to create, put have more throughput during, especially in our surgery program. Mm-hmm. And so, our goal is really 2% and our mean uh, length of stay in our surgery program is about 2.8 days. So we're looking at if we can get to 2.2 to 2.5 days, 10% decrease, you know, that's, that's big. Well, even with just some of the work that we've been doing, getting uh, patients 
uh, uh, better supported at home, uh, not only with our community partners, but uh, get them on the Seamless app, for example, uh, monitored more um, more closely remotely. They have We have virtual wards, so we know that they get checked in uh, by the nurse or by the physician once or twice a day. So we were able to go down from 2.8 uh, to 2.1. Well, that's a huge impact, mm -hmm. big, big impact, because now we've just created all this extra capacity. One thing that we didn't realize when we started doing this is there's another issue, which is the human resource issue. We are dealing with a nursing crisis, so we're not able to actually operationalize all that added uh, capacity because we have a human resource issue. But that's not to say that what we did was for naught. Again, going back to what our, we were talking about before, patients like that care better. They enjoy and are better off at home. We know they get better sleep. We know they get better nutrition. We know that they actually do their exercises better. That was always the fear. And actually, that was an interesting point. Um, we were always under the impression that if they weren't in the hospital, they weren't going to do their exercises. So they're going to go home. They're going to sit in bed. It's actually the reverse. Yeah. So patients are more likely to stay in bed because the nurse hasn't come by to make sure that I can do my exercises. And so we would realize that they're actually doing less in the hospital. Oh, the physiotherapist has come. I'm not allowed to get up to go to the bathroom. <laughs> but at home, this is what you need to do three times a day. This is the video. These are the instructions. Patients were actually doing better at home. So they enjoy it. They're more comfortable. They're doing their exercises. It just makes sense. And not to mention, we had capacity. So it was a win-win. And then when that capacity, we can actually operationalize it. Not only can we operationalize that when we get our human resource issue fixed, then that's when the next phase of not only do we have more throughput, now we're going to have to rely more on technology to be able to virtually monitor these patients and then come up with even bigger ways of expanding our ICU, expanding everything else. And I, I'm really excited about what's going to happen next. Yeah. Well, uh, actually, speaking of what's going to happen next, I think it's a, a good segue. You know, we've been asking some guests on the podcast for a little while now, but um, now that Canada does seem to be relatively opening up more and more, uh, and, and definitely will be over time, what aspects of patient communication do you think virtual has completely replaced? And what do you think will most likely go back to being face-to-face? -face? So um, there are some things that uh, we know patients will never want to come back into the hospital or the office for. And so the check-ins, uh, the uh, quick review of results, mm -hmm. uh, patients now, they don't tolerate that. You know, I'm coming in, you're saying everything is fine. It cost me $30 in parking and two hours of my time. And it's really a three minute conversation. So and now to be very honest, when a patient comes in, uh, if it's not a 15 or 20 minute conversation, I feel guilty. Like I, mm -hmm. I, I feel invested. <laughs> you've come in all the way in, you know, before it was a non-issue. Now you've come all the way in to see me. It, it's impossible for us to deliver the product of a five minute conversation patients are not going to tolerate that now right. and they barely are tolerated it before now it's inconceivable and so i think um well uh you know check-ins review of results uh the quick uh making sure post-operatively we're on track cancer surveillance um things like that i find it very hard to believe we're ever going to see that in person mm -hmm. uh, unless a patient desires it Obviously, that's always the default. 
um, the more complex assessments, um, we're seeing a bit of a difference. And the other thing that was really intriguing that I noticed over the last, especially during wave three, is I always felt that the younger demographic would want to embrace the technology while the older demographic would feel worried or uh, um, scared about the technology. It was actually the opposite. So the younger demographic wanted to get to know you, wanted to have a feel for you. You're going to do my surgery. I just didn't get that warm, fuzzy feeling about you over the phone or over the computer. I'm coming in. I want to see where I want to have a conversation. I want to see the human side of it. Mm-hmm. While older patients felt, you know, it's, I don't like driving in the city. I hate driving. I feel very scared about coming out because of COVID. Uh, I, I, I can't afford the parking. I really don't want to come in. So it's actually the opposite of what I felt was going to be the uptake. And again, I think the older demographic coming in for what they see, what they perceive to be a routine visit, that's gone. The in-person assessments, you know, physical exams, um, we've had some pretty unique, um, I don't know about innovations because we're still testing them out. So some of our ophthalmologists are looking at virtual assessments for the, the eye and uh, some visual examinations. Uh, I've only seen some preliminary stuff. It's exciting, but I don't think it's ready for prime time right now. We have the digital stethoscope. So our respirologists, they mail out the box to the patients that they're going to be seeing, which is with a peak flow valve. So they do their spirometry on the computer. They put their digital um, stethoscope on their chest so they can do that examination. Again, I don't think it's ready for right prime time, but exciting. Cardiologists, I think, you know, cardiopulmonary remote monitoring is probably the most advanced, you know, so the cardiologist can do your ECG measure your blood pressure, can listen to your heart remotely, you know, but, but I think those things until we get a little bit more technology, I think those things are going to still live within uh, an office. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one thing um, that we definitely have seen a huge uptake is, is complex patients. So in our adolescent and our pediatric complex patient uh, clinics, you know, for these individuals to come in wheel trans, uh, support worker, parents, uh, not to mention the financial toxicity, like parents have to take time off work, they have to pay their uh, PSWs and bring in these patients that are very complicated. And the no-show rate, you know, 50% no-show rate in these clinics. Now with virtual, you're in your home or they're in their uh, in their um, uh, either rehab or in their homes or in their apartments. The team is there. You can see it virtually, you can see them in their surroundings and in their environment, assess their home environment. And so now we have a much higher uh, uptake and almost no virtual no-show uh, for the complex patients. That I think is here to stay. Um, but uh, surgery still we're gonna need to do. Um, you know, our robotic program is exciting, but I still don't think we're gonna be doing surgery on the moon quite yet. So people are gonna still be coming in for their procedures. I think people are still gonna be coming in for their diagnostics, most of their diagnostics. Mm-hmm. But again, as more and more of these things become commoditized, you know, we're going to probably see a lot of stuff happening at home, even from there. But I I think there's a, and I, we estimate the way we're projecting our volumes going into the next phase of things is 25% of the volume that we saw, we will never see again. Um, And maybe 20 to 25%, we don't know. It just depends on the uptake of the community. And then about 50% of what we were doing before probably still should and we think will remain uh, in the hospital in terms right. of in-person activity. Fascinating. Um, Alan, before we get to kind of the, the fast five or the lightning round, is there anything else that you are hoping to, to cover, Dr. Simone? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I had one other question. It may be repetitive, so you know, if, if you if you feel like it, it's not necessary, then we can skip it. But I was curious, in terms of virtual care, do you have any predictions on how that could evolve in the next three or five years from now? So three to five, I would say, uh, what's definitely on the horizon for us. If I were to just look in the ward. Um, we have a patient that uh, it, I consent for surgery. I think, again, 50% of the, maybe the first visit, I will see them in person. I'll do their investigations. Reporting back the results probably will be virtual. The consent process and the education process preoperatively will most likely be virtual. I will then consent them for surgery. We will have some exchange of information and some education around what that means then they will be seen in the preoperative assessment clinic. I think that eventually that will be a virtual wow. assessment by the anesthesiologist. There will be some education that will be provided for the patient. They'll have their blood work in the community. And then their electrocardiogram could be done virtually with two fingers on a desk and be uploaded and, and in real time assessed by the anesthesiologist. They'll be able to examine their airway looking at the camera. Uh, and then they'll come in for their surgery. They'll come in for their surgery. Before that, they'll be on seamless and they'll get reminders about their surgery, when to stop their medication, answer any questions. They'll come in for surgery during their stay. There'll be a combination of electronic video-based instructions about what they expect every single day and where, what milestones should be achieved every single day to make sure that they're doing their exercises and achieving their milestones. And if they're falling behind, who to contact and who to communicate. Maybe in about day two, I'm hoping we should have a mean, an average stay of about two days in hospital, even for the most complex patients. The rest of their care can be done virtually and at home in their environment, provided they have a safe environment to go to. If they don't, then we're here for them. And if they do have a safe environment to go to, then they go home. They're followed and enrolled in a virtual ward. They're checked in on by a healthcare professional, making sure that they're achieving their milestones. If they don't, there are some triggers. They either come back to the hospital, most likely not through the emergency department, but so they can avoid that, but come into the hospital to be able to be reassessed. After that, maybe the first or second assessment will be done in person. Mm -hmm. But after that, most of that's going to be done virtually. And if they have to go to the ICU, we now have an opportunity to expand our capacity and have even overnight mm -hmm. with cameras being able to assess patients. We already have ventilators, dialysis machines, infusion pumps that all could be uh, controlled remotely. Um, those are all things that we can incorporate and have seen in their immediate post-operative uh, phase. Mm -hmm. And I would say that that's not three to five years away. That's right. already happening. Yeah, wow. <laughs> in a lot of places, that's now. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a matter of will the rest of us adapt and adopt what's already available in the next three to five years. And I think that we better. Mm -hmm. I think what's, you know, what's being conjured up by, you know, people like you and, and uh, other innovative thinkers in 10 years, I think is, I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. I think it's going to be far more, uh, again, once the technology becomes more commoditized, I think it's going to be even more is going to be delivered at home. Uh, that actually uh, leads to another question and I'd love to get your take on. So, you know, CMS is doing work both, you know, locally here in Canada, but also in the U.S. And, and one of the differences in the U.S. market is there is, you know, really a free market competition mm -hmm. for, um, you know, patient um, um, volume. So, you know, I think what's changed with telemedicine and virtual care, more and more health systems in the U.S. are saying, hey, you know what, um, 
if you get your care at our hospital, if you get your surgeon at our hospital, we'll still be able to monitor you and, and communicate virtually, even if you're, you know, a state away or across the country. And so in some ways, maybe some of care is being commoditized in the US, um, more so than in Canada, where I think here it's more of a regional approach and you're caring for your local community. So there's a very big difference, in, I think, in an approach to healthcare from that lens. On, but on the other hand, um, you know, especially if you're, if you did a surgery for a patient, um, you know that patient best, um, you know, um, if there are complications, you have a better understanding of their history. So one of the concerns I have is, well, yes, you could do the surgery in a hospital and then the patient could fly back home at some point, but if there's a complication or an issue, are they really best off getting, you know, it, and gosh, I hope they don't get readmitted, but if they are, are they best off getting readmitted a state away at a hospital with no context for that patient's, you know, surgery and, and, and history, or are they better off getting their care, you know, at the index hospital? Um, and so at some point, um, if you're going to care for patients across the country, you're probably going to lose something if you go completely virtual. Um, any, any thoughts on, like, is there a limit to, like, how far a patient can be from the, from where they had their thoracic surgery, for example, where, it, where you, you think it's, still safe, I guess, if, you know, um, or, or, or do you think that, you know what, hey, if there's centers of excellence like Michael Guerin and a patient wants to come from you know, Newfoundland, you can make it work. I mean, I'd love to get your, I know it's, this is still very new, but I'd love to get your take on that. Yeah, no, I, to be honest with you, we've been actually talking about that recently because we are getting more, uh, more and more interest from farther and farther away. And, and my take has always been on, it's not really about uh, the patient, sorry, it's not really about the surgeon uh, or the organization. It's really about the patient and the complexity of what they're about to undergo. So for example, if we risk stratify a patient is a 50 year old, otherwise healthy, completely incidental stage one lung cancer wants to come to Toronto because he's in Northern Ontario or Northern Quebec and would like to have care delivered by one of our colleagues who specializes in minimally invasive surgery. It's not offered in their community because it's a much lower risk procedure. We have this initial contact. We realize and risk stratify you to be very, very low risk and an excellent surgical candidate. You know what? I, I think that's very reasonable. And your risk of having a complication is very low. And if there is a complication, we'll be able to help you with it. And then we should own that complication. We need to understand that wherever you wind up being, we'll need to fly you back in. But the risk of that is really, really low. But if that same individual calls me and they're a bit older and now they have type 2 diabetes, which is poorly controlled, peripheral vascular disease, and they had a heart attack last year, and they continue to smoke three packs of cigarettes a day and have a lung cancer, which is actually pretty advanced and may need chemotherapy and radiation afterwards, well, then I have a moral obligation to say, look, you know, your chances of having a complication are pretty high and you're going to need to be linked with a hospital that's going to be able to provide care with you for you for multiple visits over a long period of time because chemotherapy, you're going to need to have it for six months. Northern Quebec to Toronto, are you, are you going to fly back every chemo session? I mean, oh, no, no, no. I'm going to have my chemo there. I'll have my surgery here. Okay, but now we're talking about fragmenting your care. We need to make sure that the, the local partners are as engaged as we are when it comes to remotely monitoring you. And so I think if that patient then would be risk stratified to be not a good candidate, and I would then feel ethically obligated to advise you that, yes, I can offer you minimally invasive surgery, but you know what? That's just one step in a very long journey that you're under, going to undertake, and you're going to be better served to be care, cared for locally 
and us providing some, you know, expert advice and some and some uh, maybe some help with your local uh, caregivers, and we'll be involved. But I think you should get a care close to home. Mm -hmm. So I think if we have that as a general preface, I would have no, and I've had no problem uh, having patients come to Ontario, come into Toronto. The one unique thing about, uh, uh, not unique, but Canadian thing is that, you know, we don't advertise outside of the province. So we don't, we don't welcome, uh, that's a bad word. You know, we welcome them, welcome them. So if they're here, we care for them. Uh, but there is, you know, there is a, also a legal issue about a patient coming from, for example, you know, catchment of Montreal, which is just as good as anything that's here in Toronto to come here, mm-hmm. um, upstate New York, they provide exactly the same care that we do. Why? why? So we wouldn't, you know, you're not allowed to solicit into right. Ontario. Uh, but within Ontario, having Northern Ontario, we, we have patients that come for second opinions from Sault Ste. Marie, Thunder Bay. Absolutely. And I think that's completely reasonable. But again, you have to have a clinician that has an honest and, and very transparent risk stratification process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, oh, and also one other thing, I know I'm going on a tangent, but another thing that we do is we do planning rounds. So we, every Friday morning, for example, so tomorrow morning, we will uh, sit down and review all of our cases. So uh, the four of the four surgeons will review and we will then have an open and transparent discussion about why is this patient coming to the operating room? You know, Carmine, I don't agree with that decision that you made. I don't agree that I think you should do this. So we, openly, respectfully challenge each other to make sure that the person you're bringing in is the right person to bring in. So if that all of those pieces are in place, then to answer your question in a very long-winded way, I would openly uh, agree to out of province, or excuse me, out of region uh, patients coming in and then being monitored uh, remotely. I love that. It's an incredibly patient-centered holistic, thoughtful approach. And uh, I, I hope, Dr. Simone, you, you're involved in any of those conversations at the provincial or national level as, as this sort of probably starts to happen. Hope, I hope you're able to get a seat at the table because I think that sort of thoughtfulness will be incredibly helpful uh, as, as parental care evolves. Um, I, I know, I think we people love the fast five, the lightning round. Dr. Simone, <laughs> leave a couple more minutes. Yeah, of course. Awesome. Okay, so we're going to jump into it. We call it the, the lightning round, fast five basically five questions to get to know you a little bit better. Um, so the first question we have is what is your favorite book or book you've gifted the most? Oh, um, so it's uh, we are all perfectly fine. It's actually uh, by Gillian Horton, who's a Canadian physician. Uh, she and I were residents uh, a long time ago and uh, someone gave this uh, to me. And uh, I've already, uh, I don't have any more copies of it, but I've already given away about a half a dozen of them. So right here, this is my favorite book. Well, I think Dr. Harden owes you a shout out for that uh, endorsement. (laughs) I already tweeted out uh, that I had the books. (laughs) That's good. Uh, Question two, how has an apparent failure set you up for greater success? Um, so probably the biggest, uh, failure is, uh, I, I went uh, and applied for a job, uh, in my fourth year of undergraduate pharmacology at AstraZeneca in Mississauga it was a supervisor role. It was actually a really good job. Uh, and, uh, and I didn't get it <laughs> and I thought, uh, what am I going to do now? So then that's when I went to grad school and, uh, then medical school. So, um, if I probably went to there, I 
probably wouldn't have had this journey. So I would say that was probably my best failure. Right. AstraZeneca, <laughs> you missed out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had stock options. <laughs> That's good. Uh, question three, would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds? <laughs> uh, I'll definitely go with uh, read people's minds. That's, okay. Yeah, uh, definitely. It's <laughs> a good one. Uh, question four, what is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane? <laughs> so uh, I think Joshua and I had this conversation. So back in the uh, 80s, only three people used pagers, uh, doctors, lawyers, and drug dealers. And uh, drug dealers and lawyers became far more advanced. So the only people on the planet that still use pagers are physicians. So yeah. I would say that anybody, including drug dealers, would find it still shocking that uh, we use. I don't use a pager. Uh, but we still have about a good 10% of our staff yeah. use pagers. And we had to, we had to negotiate a special arrangement with Rogers just to keep those things wow. right, just to keep them. Wait, so, so, so even Rogers wants to get rid of pagers. <laughs> who, who wants pagers? Nobody wants, except doctors. Doctors are the only people in the world. It's wild. Uh, last question that we have, this one is a COVID-19 lockdown uh, related question. What is one hobby or activity you've gotten into since the beginning of the pandemic? Oh, I got a Peloton. I know you've been quite busy over this. Uh, no, I got, a, I, I got a Peloton bike. So that was the one thing my wife and I promised each other that uh, with, with COVID and with our gym memberships getting canceled is that uh, we needed to do something. So I got a Peloton bike. So I'm... Uh, I'm on Peloton. I haven't got my hundred rides yet, uh, so embarrassingly, but I'm almost going to be part of the Century Club. I'm, I think, two rides away. Wow. <laughs> so that, that's the second time we've heard that answer this week. We actually um, recorded with Dr. Jeffrey Golish from Sunnybrook's Holland Center a few days ago, and he had the exact same answer as you. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's becoming yeah, a trend, uh, yeah. Yeah, Michael Warner, uh, who was the big Peloton uh, advocate, you probably know Michael Warner, he's been a lot of, very active in social media and quite an advocate around... Uh, um, COVID policy uh, throughout the pandemic, but uh, so he got quite a few of us at Michael Garren Hospital on Peloton. So I, I I owe him credit for getting me onto Peloton. Amazing, Dr. Small. I just want to say on behalf of Alan, myself, and the team. First of all, thank you so much for being a, a pioneer of digital patient engagement before it was a thing. And uh, uh, thank you for the amazing insight today. We really loved having you on on the podcast. So thank you. No, no, great. thank you. And again, as I mentioned before, it's really great to see the success of uh, Seamless MD. Uh, looking forward to seeing what's to come with uh, with you and the rest of the team. So thanks for having me and uh, congratulations on all the success. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you, Dr. Simone. It, it's honestly felt like a bit of a reunion today. So. <laughs> it was, it was. <laughs>